Hello and welcome to your favorite comic book YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. And I'm Tom Scholey, author of I Am Stan. I want to remind everybody of Cartoonist Kayfabe comic book Christmas in July, the last Saturday in July, July 29th. We are inviting our audience to join us in giving away some comics in those little local lending libraries. Get some doubles, get some comps, get some good comics, and put those in the little local lending libraries because we know readers go there and we want to make new comic book readers. So what easier way to do it? This is the second year in a row that we are doing the Cartoonist Kayfabe comic book Christmas in July. Had about a thousand participants judging from social media last year. Love to see 10,000 this year. Grow some new readers and uh, help comics continue to flourish. We also want to remind everybody of the Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon. You can get our videos before anyone else to alleviate the kayfabe effect, be the first one in line tracking down some of these books that disappear from uh, the usual channels or go up in price. And at the King Kayfaber level, you can actually sit in on our recording sessions and get all of the videos early. So with that out of the way, we are going to be looking at comics interview number two, the Miller's Ronin interview. This is one of those documents. Like yeah. I get a lot of these old magazines love reading about comics history and sometimes you get one that is just completely blindsided me what is in this interview it is conducted before ronin is published at this point i think two issues are penciled so it's it's moving along it's being solicited yeah exactly and it's interesting how fast these things turn around even an oversized series like ronin uh published every six weeks as you see here beginning in april um at this point, like I said, I think there's two issues penciled is what the interviewers are referencing and what Miller's talking about. And Miller doesn't give away too much about the story content of Ronin, but he does talk a lot about other parts of Ronin. And that's what blew me away in this interview is like he is talking format. He is talking that six weeks publishing schedule, uh, some creator ownership discussion in here. This is incredible because this is 1980. Three, I believe, is the date on this actual issue, April 1983, way ahead of a lot of these topics that I think cartoonists continue not always to talk yeah. about to this very day, 40 years later. So let me ask you, like, is this a recent find for you? About a year ago. Okay. For years, for a decade, 15 years, the three of us have been engaged in conversation where the idea of the black line yes. comes up <laughs> with this like white glossy paper. This is my first time reading this. I love that Frank Miller is notices that so young and is trying to solve that issue. Uh, and the issue is you cannot ink a comic the way you do on newsprint for the white glossy Baxter paper. You have to do other things because the black is so fucking overwhelming. It's right here. I found that when the paper is white, most of what comic book inking is no longer works. The heavy blacks and the bold outlines produce too slick a look for good paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Main It's right here. Mainstream comics has been failing at that for the past 30 years with yeah. the glossy paper and the computer color. They still do to this day. When we, we looked at All-Star Superman and it would have be sprinkled with ads for the jobber comics and you see it between the two man you look at the page of the quietly you look at the fucking ad and that is part one of what sucks about that kind of comic yeah it's really really an impressive article just for production and advancing that makes me wonder like 
who is Frank Miller talking to about these kinds of topics? Because like I said, we have this conversation our whole careers and most people are like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you get a blank <laughs> who, stare. Who, who, who's he talking to? He's at yeah. Upstart Studio. Yes, And we're going exactly. to see photos of that little mm-hmm. little whippersnapper. So he's got Simonson, he's got Jake in, maybe Jim Starlin's over off do, doing his thing over there. I picture some Neil Adams input here and there mm-hmm. about production and commercial illustration. He went to Continuity Young. Absolutely. I, th- I, th- I think he got those... Um, I, uh, those uh it's not called lone wolf and cub here because it hasn't been translated right. in yeah, english right. yet so you have to be literal with it but i think he was first exposed to it by way of larry hama yes at, at continuity uh talks about how ronin comes about and it's jeanette con uh publisher of dc comics longtime publisher of dc comics president of dc comics i can't remember what her title was but it was always the top person mm-hmm. yeah and i have so much respect for her coming out of this interview because it's forward thinking he talks about taking a meeting with her and discussing not just story ideas jumbled notes as he says for ronin but also talking about the other parts of it the business the format and he gets those things yeah you know like he gets the better production which means you can have lynn varley come on and paint the book right and she but she's still proto like she's still early like it doesn't look very different than anything really in terms of you know there's more colors to play with i want to recommend everybody check out the dark knight returns documentary it came with some blu-ray dvd something like that uh of course it's mostly about dark knight but you have to get through daredevil and ronin to get to dark knight and they actually speak with Jeanette con to talk about the specifics of of how this was possible and you know he wanted freedom he wanted some control he wanted some ownership she wanted to see how that's possible. She comes from the you know big five uh, New York book publishers. So this is all stuff she's used to. Now she's in the ghetto of comics, seeing how stuff is so has been one way for so long, realizes that you can actually have some ownership, you know, provide some ownership and some some better uh, deals. And uh, she described it as taking some risk. Like she factored in a budget for risk taking in the hopes that innovation occurs and and big things happen that bore fruit it wasn't this that bore him fruit but it has over time i'm sure i'm sure there's so many of these in print at the moment and ultimately it will be a kind of a failure in in the immediate future after this is out dude he talks about pie in the sky pie in the sky i would like for it to be collected into a single book Mm -hmm. someday like that like that was an impossibility or just such a new idea this episode is brought to you by the cartoonist kayfabe patreon three different levels of participation at our patreon but if you become a king kayfaber you get all of the videos before anybody else gets to see them uh and it mitigates the kayfabe effect you get first dibs on the things that we talk about plus uh you have access to the live stream recording sessions where we record a week's worth of videos, giving you even uh, more exclusive access uh, before anybody else. Ultimately, the videos are brought to you by the books that we make, and we have a big year in 2023. The Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus is coming to you in time for the holiday season. 504 pages of comics in here, uh, that which represents the four volumes of Hip Hop Family Tree, plus uh, 140 pages of comics and material that are not in those first four volumes of Hip Hop family tree 
X-Men Grand Design Trilogy collects all of my X-Men Grand Design work in one handy dandy trade paperback. Some of that is out of print at the moment. The current focus is Red Room Crypto Killers. Issue number three is forthcoming and is going to be a hotkey because it is establishing a version of the characters that I'm exploring in my daily comic strip, which will be serializing on my Patreon to start uh, at, a link, at the link in the description below. Jimmy has a nice plethora of materials out there. The Street Angel Princess of Poverty book is coming to you in November, in time for the holidays. Uh, it represents all of uh, Jim's Street Angel comics. If you have the Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive as a companion piece, Hulk Grand Design is the Marvel comic that Jim put together, but the newest effort uh, that is currently out of print, but gonna be getting uh, another print run is true crime funnies and uh, make sure you connect with Jim at his website for that now that we're done paying the bills back to the video this whole interview covers how revolutionary the thinking was here mm -hmm. at one point he refers to you know like he did pencils and writing or layouts and writing for daredevil but this one of course he's taking on inking and he says he's taking on editing so you know he is talking to DC in terms of producing this but he also recognizes like the autonomy that he gets with this project and i just think about like when you look at his body of work i'd say there's at least six volumes of work that really stand out there and it is all out of this model where he's essentially editing himself like he's doing mm -hmm. everything himself it's not just writing and drawing but it's also cutting out what he describes as a, a part of the story that worked okay and it was a nice yeah, story a unit, but yeah. it didn't fit overall yeah. so gotta cut that out He's talked about editing Dark Knight Returns whenever he was putting that together. Mm -hmm. Not obviously in this interview, but in other interviews. But I just think that's one of those pieces that rarely talked about or thought about. But if you're writing and drawing this stuff yourself in a creator-owned way, self-publishing, you are editing. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no schedule like a regular monthly comic. The interviewers, D David Kraft and Jim Salakrup, are the, so they're writer-minded. And they bring up the editing thing, and he's almost like, oh yeah, I guess I, I guess it is editing. And this is such a new kind of comics making that he has to like cogently explain the process. So like these dudes are like, yeah, but you know, like, uh, you know, what if there's a sequence that you realize it just, it just doesn't quite work. And he's like, I change it. I change it and I make something better, uh, which is impossible to do on a monthly schedule. It's like, get it out. Hope you get it right the next time. Look at this kid. Yeah. Lanky Frank. Yeah, 20, 25, 26 years old at this point. You get to see some of his pencils here. And he, he's so fun because he talks about some of the more craft side of things, like doing the inking himself and how he's kind of learning that part as he goes along. Yeah. Uh, even trying to be expressive in his borders and doing the word balloons himself uh, is part of the expressiveness of the art and the line. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the John Constanza, one of those yeah. guys is the letterer, and, and he wants a kind of a aesthetic to the to the word balloons and 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 the uh panel borders and he's like i i just would not do that to to a letter or to, no. to, to require him to and, and he the particular cites, he cites the old like bat lash comics were the inspiration for like a, a jagged kind of bo panel border i googled that to see what that was man and and yeah it's it's almost like the filipinos from the alex ninos and stuff they, they would have that but he by citing bat lash you, you he's talking nick cardi and joe kubert and he's like predominant these guys who do a lot of drawing in the ink and that's mm -hmm. that's what he's interested in with with this piece doing a lot of drawing uh with with pen you know what going back to lynn varley for a minute 
I don't know her background, but Miller says here has an understand Lynn Varley has an understanding of better reproduction and imagination and expertise with color that makes her contribution a crucial part of the project. I wonder what that understanding of better reproduction is yeah. because you're probably not getting that if you're just a comics color. Right. We're talking we're talking lithography, we're talking mm -hmm. like, you know, real high-end G clay art prints and stuff like that. Yeah. How closely do you work with the colorist and letter? Are you editing Ronin too? Like you were saying, Ed, the, these guys, this is such new. It feels like it's new language to just yeah. talk about making comic books this way. Right. Gives Dick Giordano a lot of credit for, you know, kind of being his editor, but also helping him along with like learning inking. Mm -hmm. That would be the guy, huh? Yeah. It's, it's wild to think of how much he is doing at this young, as you say, Lanky Frank here at a young age, like so ambitious. Yeah. I feel such a debt to what he does at this age because he doesn't, it's not a ton of clout. This isn't post Dark Knight when you can probably name your price and do whatever you want. This is him really pushing the borders back of like, let's get ambitious here. Daredevil was the number two book at Marvel at the time with, with X-Men being a close number one. So there's some clout, you know, like in it. And because everybody is, they knew what Daredevil was. You mm -hmm. took this fucking totally, you know, silly yeah, Batman wanna, wannabe comic, uh, and he elevated it to become number two. Nobody else did, like, he did that, and it was clear across the board. So, that, I mean, it was clout, in a way. It just wasn't where it grows to it, be. It's, it's clout and ambition, because, like, the number one book... John Byrne goes to Fantastic Four. He doesn't go to DC and say, I want a new deal. I want to own it. I want that's it true. published on my schedule. I want better production and paper. I mean, he doesn't do that. that. He just says, plug me into the next thing. Yeah, that's a conversation to have when we do the uh, Man of Steel miniseries. Yes. You know, because that, that's the illustration of where Frank's head is and where John Byrne's head is. It's weird that his head is here, though, because I don't see too many other people. Although when you talk about Upstart Studio, Howard Chaikin sitting in one of those mm -hmm. chairs. And I feel like he had some ideas, too, that you see in American Flag. Simon, Simonson also with, like, you know, Topi influence. Because, like, where where you see it is he, he's getting French books and he's getting Mattel Erlant. And he sees, he sees Lone Wolf and Cub and just knows that there is a much broader landscape of comics beyond what we kind of, like accepted at a very early stage in the development of the medium and and you know i mean there's there's a whole nother conversation to have there because you know i'm into comic strips in a big way right now and guess what for about 50 years we had everything that manga has mm -hmm. there were comics about people going fishing and and housewife comics and every manner of uh subject matter it all just kind of went away but we had it and we lost it so he's interested in comics where all that stuff is still going on and thriving yeah a couple of the uh the the comics that he cites outside of lone wolf and cub is mobius of course yeah and joe's bar right yeah you know what's so funny because they say uh Sampaio, and that's what klaus jansen said to us as well so like that's the writer like like they they night uh klaus did not mention munoz to us when we sh did the shoot interview so it's like Sampaio is the uh the overall creator. It's interesting. But but when you bring up Joe's Bar, that means that um, Frank Miller is aware of Raw Magazine. Mm -hmm. That is mentioned in here, yeah, very briefly. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely looking at what would be kind of cutting edge. I mean, 1983, you're not seeing too much of either of those sources, manga and European comics. So. Totally. There's even a back and forth 
when the name Jim Jim is mentioned, or he says like, "Oh yeah, Jimbo" or something. Yeah. And and the writers like Jim Salakrup thinks he's talking about Gary Panter, and uh, Frank is a little dismissive. He's like, "Oh no, not that. <laughs> right, not that." Yeah. There's always been uh, some pa- some Panter hate. Well, not Panther, but Spiegelman, like Raw. I feel like Spiegelman and Miller have always been at odds. Sure. So maybe everything that's coming out of the Spiegelman-Raw universe. Nice seeing these Miller pencils. Can't say that I've seen them before. And um, and yeah, about the drawing in ink. Like when when Miller draws in pencil, it it looks like you know pretty standard kind of stuff. It's yeah. the ink where it turns into Sin City or totally. you know, Ronin. Take a look at our art of uh, Sin City episode that we did and also uh, another video that to be stitched together and to make a super video jimmy is the uh, eisner miller conversation yes. that we did and both guys were in agreement that the pencil is like a stylus in old renaissance like it's it's a stick in the mud mm-hmm. to give you an indicator and like the real drawing tool is is the things that you use with ink i thought this was surprising he talks about writing here and he says it's much more intense than doing anything else in this business. It's much more brain work. It's much harder, and it takes a lot longer. I can draw for 12 hours and feel okay, but if I write for six, my brain is completely fatigued. I, I don't hear too many cartoonists talk about writing being harder than drawing. Happy to hear that, uh, because, because uh, well, here's the thing. He's a cartoonist, and I think all cartoonists like feel some, some level of, of uh, agreement to that, because you have to figure out what it is it has to be interesting you have to figure out panel orientation and and with a cartoonist to me like it could get become a semantic argument because the roughs and the thumbnails and stuff is writing to right, me yeah. it's not it's not drawing the drawing is simple how about that for your author photo <laughs> broody i mean that was a big part of his persona was this broody guy you know in a trench coat in the shadows and and probably not a put on either like i think that's the real guy <laughs> i was gonna say i think this is after your 12 hours of drawing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what the jimbo is they were like he brought up yo jimbo movies like kurosawa right, yeah. flicks earlier and then the writers like you know they have less class and stuff and they're like yeah you mentioned jimbo earlier are you talking about gary panther not saying that gary panther's less class i'm just saying the, sure. they, they didn't hear yo jimbo they don't know kurosawa i'm working on becoming a cartoonist He's talking about introducing caricature, yes. saying that Jack Kirby had caricature within his stuff. You know, yeah, that this whole section is about that and the idea of uh, like editorial cartoons. He says, "I'm not talking about Bigfoot cartoons here. I'm talking about political work and, and that kind of caricature." And if you look at like that words and pictures uh, newsletter that they put together, there's a lot of yeah. editorial style comics by Miller in that. Yeah, Sinkevich too. I don't know why that stuff is not a bigger deal because it's fantastic cartooning. Yeah. I can't believe it's not even collected because there's a lot of work in there and you guys can see it all at Tom Brevert's uh, website. He has the entire run of that series posted there. We've done a video on it, but you get to see Miller really exploring it in the 80s. Um, You see his work go in that direction. Like he's really laying out a lot of his, where he's going to go over the next several decades in this interview. Mm -hmm. Man, I would go so far if this, if, you know, it's, it's um, credited as, as pencils, Mm -hmm. but even this is writing to me. Yeah. Like, it's not it's not the drawing part yet. I wonder if there's one more step beneath this, of right. like a layout writing version, mm-hmm. kind of like what he's doing with Daredevil, you know, when they yeah. talk, because there's, there's a fair amount of Daredevil talk in this interview, as you would expect, and he kind of talks about doing layouts and yeah. Klaus doing the finished art, and I wonder, like, 
is there another step? Is he writing and, you know, is his writing process drawing? Yeah, I don't think it is because he, he is a typewriter guy. And, mm -hmm. and like, I, I, I seem to remember reading something where he, he basically writes movie scripts for himself to illustrate. So it's each iteration where like you or I might like do like those thumbnail things and maybe Marvel method ourselves a bit and kind of think out the last little bits on the page. I'm actually not so sure that, that he did that. Yeah, that may be something that he does in that edit, editing stage when he talks about redoing a section right. or something. Right. It could be like from this stage where, oh, I've got a better way and, and you redo, you know, something at this stage. He also talks about like, I don't want to become a personality. I don't think cartoonists should that, get in front of a camera that's, that's and the biggest talk about joke. their work. Yeah. And yeah. he's the guy. Like, right. You know. And totally us as a cartoonist kayfabe. Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. And uh, I, I could uh, offer a counter argument to what he's arguing here. And, and I think he could too. It's yeah. a different age. Yeah. It's a total like different times, place, age. There were way more opportunities like this to kind of get, get your word mm -hmm. across and to promote your stuff. And, and uh, bad comics were selling 300,000. Like we have a different yeah. age. And the thing is there are less gatekeepers and you could create your own platforms. It's just like, it would be foolish to not do like literally exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, if Jack Kirby had the option to set up a little camera and talk about his comics, he'd do it. Yeah. You know, this is a neat part. This is the inner, this is Salakrup asking or saying, not only are you acting as editor, artist, and writer on Ronin, the whole creative side, but you're also taking care of the business side too. How do you handle all that? And, probably one of the few interviews I've seen where the guys are really talking business mm -hmm. and you know he says not as well as he should and you know he's lost a lot of work time but it's a necessity his word you know it's a necessity right now because of the changing state of the industry and I and I still think like why didn't everybody follow this example mm -hmm. you know Ronan you know maybe what, wasn't you know the is, biggest hit and that's it he was Custer and and he got f filled with arrows pretty early and uh, it took a Batman book to put it over the top. And it's never talked about, but I talked with several people from DC, like off the record, people who knew. That project came under duress. Like he had financial pressures that, that made that uh, uh, a necessity for, for him to do. So like, that's the thing, like this, he, he took arrows for this. And I'm he, going to get it for Ronan. And he did, he got it. <laughs> He says that a couple of times, which is interesting because it makes me wonder, like, what kind of negative stuff was he getting in 1983 well, so with much just violence. Daredevil? Yeah, all the violence in Daredevil would be... But a cast... couple times he says that in this interview. Like, yeah. he, he, he pushes the costumes. He's probably going to get some, you know, negative feedback for that. Ga Gary Groth and, and, and the, the guys at the journal, like, every issue... It, it, it's so funny how it worked because, like, you know, they interviewed him several times while he's mm -hmm. on Daredevil and he got the cover feature. But, like, the other issues, maybe even within those issues also, they would, like, lean on the violence like like we look at it as nothing now it's yeah true. it's but yeah. the graphic violence was um a, it was the talking point it's it's become like just the the baseline at this point and he does get it from kim thompson we read kim thompson's review of ronin you it's, know? it's amazing it's one of the greatest critical <laughs> reviews i've ever seen it, it basically lays out his whole career too from reading issue one of yeah, ronin yeah i mean my my the what i didn't like though is he was critiquing uh, Ronin for things that Frank Miller hasn't done yet. You know what I mean? It's it like he had a, he had a time machine. All, every, it's true about all that other stuff, but it's not true of Ronin, what he was saying. You know? we'll, we'll, we'll handle all of that, yeah. man. And and uh, this inspires me. Like This is issue two of Comics Interview. Uh, I, I got hold of at least digital versions of every issue 
of this, of uh, Amazing Heroes. We got the keys to the castle with uh, Comics Journal. Like I got a big digital with that. They gave us passwords and stuff so that so that we could get hold of that. Maybe on our Sunday videos, we, we begin to oscillate where it's like a wizard, you know, a comics interview, an Amazing Heroes. Yeah. Uh, and do three or four comics magazines like each Sunday to have like a big broad conversation. Because uh, I actually, I don't like comics interview completely because like certainly later when it's less David Allen Craft and stuff. Uh, the interviews are fanboy. It's fanboy people talking, and it's a bad use of Frank Miller's time on during the Dark Knight one and shit. But we've done a couple of these, and as historical documents, the conversations that we have around this these period, this crazy period, um, it's good to get that shit on the record. I want to do a little bit more on this business stuff yeah. because there, there's some really fascinating ideas here for 1983, even for today's world, 40 yes. years later. You know, he suggests that these changes that are making in this in the industry. They'll be good for everybody, publishers and freelancers. You know, everybody is going to win if things go the way they should. If the companies can learn to give up enough to make it worth our while, and if the freelancers can learn to value their own work enough to demand rights that are theirs the moment they do the work. This is current conversations, is it not? He talks about it in this, there's like this childishness or whatever. Let me keep going, Tom. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's still sizable resistance, even among writers and artists, which we saw a lot in the early days of Image Comics. We've all been treated like children for so long that it feels to some like they're attacking mommy when they say, no, this is mine about copyright or whatever. This is like foundational Mm -hmm. to making this work as a freelancer right if you write novels you know whatever creative industry you work in this is almost the only one where it's exploited to this extent and in 1983 one of the front guys in the industry is bringing up these issues is finding alternatives Mm -hmm. to those kinds of like work for hire models that really hurt a freelancer and yet we never see major change i heard so many times about various publisher contracts at heroes this year and how unfavorable they are right and it's 40 years later yeah. like why do we not learn those lessons and apply them and and you know the interesting thing about this too is that uh it, he was not everything he says about business like it's correct like uh if it becomes a movie any of that kind of stuff do you get participate he's like yes yeah, some yeah that's Ro- interesting Ro- ronin is still a dc comic it'll probably always be a dc comic it's probably the same strictures that were applied to the Watchmen deal where you know if we keep it in print like it, it's it's our thing so it wasn't a perfect deal you know like it had some cool stuff to it like whatever that thing is that he's working on now like that's called ronin like that could be a different publisher and he could prosper from it you know whatever weird language or verbal gymnastics had to be played like he he accomplished that but it wasn't it wasn't like a such a perfect deal and uh this is the stuff that we talk about all the time like like when we bring up the job guys and things like that because that unfortunately that's the deal like like uh, this is something we all wanted to do growing up and we're excited to participate so uh when these guys get a job and and uh you know we know we were at dinner once man in uh in texas when we were with a cartoonist who was with a guy who told a big publisher that he would take a pay cut if they would let him stay right in that book. Mm-hmm. These are the people who are uh, who are in your your uh you 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 know your your fan favorite spaces in the big two. So like there there's never as bi- businessmen like why why would Marvel or DC ever have to change if they, these guys are such sycophants that they would offer a pay cut. 
to be able to keep uh, their scabs on themselves. Well, yeah, that, I mean, the child thing is so right on. They they want to play in this world that they play. They want to extend their childhood. Yeah. They want to play in this. They want to be in the corner drawing pictures of Batman or whatever right. and keep childhood going and have like a mommy or a daddy who tell them, okay, here's a new fresh piece of paper for you to draw. Okay, thank you. And just keep, and they can just be in that, in that state of, infancy because it is hard dealing with business it is hard like tiring yeah. tedious and frustrating yes. yeah. but you know what that's what makes you value what you fight to get totally mm -hmm. like totally. it's good for us to have to go through some of that because it does make us appreciate it and it makes it a lot once you fight for that and you do that tedious work you're a lot less likely to just be walked on jimmy i think you're real good with like explaining the formula of publish a book uh you have a price point and how that divvies up once it hits once it hits profit stage can, can you explain to the people like that kind of third to third and a third kind of royalty system like how do you know what i'm talking about the way royalties are is basically if you set your cover price based on you're going through levels of distribution right, right. so each time it goes up so it's whatever the book cost and then you'll double that so that the the whenever it gets to a distribute distribution level and then they sell that to the store roughly 50% off cover price. They're going to mark that up to full price, which means the store gets half of the cover price. The distributor gets a chunk of that. The printer gets a chunk of that. And what you're left with is about 20% if everything works out right and you sell out the print run. And then you divvy that up. The freelancer gets about 10%. The publisher gets about 10%. So right. that's your breakdown. And there's not a lot of wiggle room in there. The only wiggle room is 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 price point of the book like if you right. if you want a better deal like then the book has to cost a little bit extra yeah it exactly affects the, right. it affects the customer at that level and that is in best case scenario that is not marvel dc any of that that might not even be some of these indie publishers that might be a talking point that needs to be negotiated but well that's the truth too because i used to do you would see like the numbers of books sold now that a lot of that information yeah, is very much gone. hidden yeah. so you don't get to see it but i would see like numbers of books sold where it would be like 7,000 copies and I'd be like that's a three dollar book or a four dollar book so you can kind of figure out okay that's twenty eight thousand dollars and now you start figuring out like who's getting what because it's totally. fourteen thousand dollars it's going back to the distributor if all those sell and then what it's seven thousand dollars it's going back to the publisher and now you know it's probably cost seven thousand copies it probably probably costs you know five thousand dollars or something for printing you get down to this piece where it's like the book is losing money and if it's a big Marvel DC project, well, we're going to do trade paperbacks and maybe we do international translations and all this stuff. So there's a way to maybe get back to whole and get profitable, but it's the publishing model. Yeah. You know, you could do this with most major book publishers too and find out that most books are losing money, maybe breaking even, but what keeps those publishers in business is the Harry Potter that sells 10 million copies exactly. where it's almost all profit. Exactly. Grant Morrison in that conversation with uh, Kevin Smith when Arkham Asylum came out, got a call sold 100,000 uh, copies like day one. And uh, it got the call from Jeanette or, or Paul Levitz and said, Grant, you're rich. You know, Grant, you're rich. And what, you know, the profits of that pay for every Piranha Press book, inclu right. including the Kyle Baker stuff that everybody loves, but nobody bought at mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, because half of that profit is going back into DC, you know, give or take mm -hmm. a little bit there. Uh, in terms of the percentage of how the profits divvied up, but a big chunk of it's going back to the publisher, and that enables them to continue publishing, keep the lights on, pay their staff, etc. Uh, that is not the model of the of of the, the big two. Like like the what made Grant right. Morrison and, and and Dave McKean quote unquote rich in that moment with that book, 
they weren't dividing 10%. Like, it was, it was way more nominal. It's just, like, the, um, the m amount of units was explosive. And whenever you look at, like, the Marvel DC model versus, I don't know, what Little Brown. Yeah. You know, some traditional book publisher. What Marvel and DC are making money on is the licensing. Right. Like, in a way, the book sales are sort of a secondary thing where they're not dependent to keep the lights on no. based on how many copies of their monthly book they sell. They have thousands, ten thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of licensings for things like socks and posters and underoos and cereal and whatever it is. And Everything about, you can well, think of, they have licenses on. And for that, they just have a license guy that signs the contract, signs the check, and we get money for that. We're not at risk. If you, the cereal maker that thinks Spider-Man cereal is a good idea and it doesn't sell, you're out of business. We're not. Prior, you pay us first. Prior to Frank Miller on Daredevil, there was no Daredevil anything, like in terms of licensing. All of a sudden, there's the Daredevil action figure coming out in the Superpowers or, or the uh, Secret, Wars. Secret Wars collection and stuff. So if you can take something and, and turn it into something, then, yeah. yeah, there's your value to and the, the And the, the, the position that the, the big two creators are in right now, um, you know, just talking about scabs, is they are the scabs of Hollywood without even knowing it. Because by making these comics, by making these arcs and all that stuff, you couldn't... Hollywood would kill to have such a cheap R&D wing to, mm -hmm. to their business model, to their studios. And it's built into the business model of professional mainstream comics that you have whatever page rates you get. But if you create a Spider-Gwen or you create, you know, Old Man Logan or something like that, that they can, you know, exploit in their own way like you whatever you've gotten paid you've just made that company 10x 100x 1000x what they paid into your little project oh man i'm not going to be able to pull it exactly out of here but miller says about the way the law is set up for work for hire is essentially these companies are the authors you know like even just mm -hmm. having your name in these books by the laws that define work for hire they're kind of throwing you a bone by letting your name even be on there because technically they're the authors of these works. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And uh, you, you can compare and contrast like when you go to um, Europe, like like uh, London or something, and you're in a bookstore and you look at the, uh, the James Bond books. Uh, here, it's by Ian Fleming and it'll have be like by somebody else. There, you have to look around for the James Bond books because the primary author... It's going to be in like their name is sort of like where it's going to be categorized and maybe along with their other novels and stuff. Yeah. Here's the line. Keep in mind that the work made for hire provision in the copyright law declares the client the author of the work. And you'll see how the pride that should be attached to creative work has been kept in check. This interview is amazing. And I, I say everybody, we have a lot of creators that watch this channel. Go read this interview because there is some information in here. Yeah. Stand up for yourself, man, because a hashtag ain't going to do shit. Good to go. I am. Hey, favorites, like, follow, subscribe <laughs> to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell so that we could notify you whenever we have new videos available. Cartoonist Kayfabe Comic Book Christmas in July. Last Saturday in July, the, the 29th, we are taking our uh, doubles. We are taking our comp copies and we are scooping up comics. 
specifically to put those into free little lending libraries in our neighborhoods, uh, the true free comic book day, so that we can increase comic book awareness. All this talk that we just had this past half hour don't mean nothing if we don't have people to read the damn things, man. So we're doing what we can to increase comic book readership. The Patreon uh, for Cartoonist Kayfabe uh, is for people who want to support the channel and get exclusive uh, sort of first viewings of all of our videos, the King Kayfabers get all the vids uh, ahead of time. And uh, when the internet is is uh, cooperating, they have access to a live uh, recording stream uh, where we are recording all the videos in, in one big giant clip. Uh, it becomes a kind of a brain trust. Cool back and forth uh, happens along the way. But the vids are brought to you by the books that we make. Jimmy, let the people know what you got. I have Hulk Grand Design and a fluorescent green treasury size edition. One of my favorite books I've ever made. The Plain Janes, also available young adult graphic novel. My next release is Street Angel Princess of Poverty coming this fall from Image Comics. It is the second Street Angel book from Image Comics after Deadliest Girl Alive, which is back in print in a second print in case you missed it. These two books together will be the perfect set on your bookshelf collecting all of the Street Angel comics that I have made. And my recent self-published comic, True Crime Funnies, this print edition has sold out. However, I am reprinting that and you can also purchase digital PDFs of it on my website or on my Patreon, patreon.com slash jimrug, where I serialized all of these comics and will continue to post my newest comics uh, for my patrons. Tommy, let the people know. Um, ask your local comics retailer to reserve a copy of Jack Kirby's Star Warriors, starring Adam Starr and the Solar Legion, which is coming out in September from Image Comics. I've taken a lost Jack Kirby classic, uh, the first thing he signed as Jack Kirby, and I've um, recontextualized it, uh, redrawn it, recolored it, and, and present it to a modern audience. I also have I Am Stan, a graphic biography of the legendary Stan Lee, coming soon from 10 Speed uh, Publishing. And also um, Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, is back in softcover this time. And please watch my uh, YouTube channel, The Total Recall Show. Yeah, watch it after you watch your episode of Cartoonist Kayfabe. <laughs> uh, Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus is coming out uh, in time for the holidays. Uh, 504 pages, 140 pages of material that is not in those first uh, four flexi-bound uh, editions that came out. It's a 10-year anniversary of Hip Hop Family Tree, 50th anniversary of hip hop culture. Uh, support the book. I'd appreciate it in a big way. Not the only holiday effort coming out. Uh, the X-Men Grand Design Trilogy trade paperback is forthcoming, uh, collecting all of the Grand Design work uh, that I put together. Some of that's out of print right now, so that'll be an opportunity for you to get that. Red Room is the current focus. Two trade paperbacks of Red Room out there. Crypto Killers is my latest season. Two issues, as you can see, are out in the wild right now. Uh, the third is going to have a backup feature that uh, will sort of give you a, a little glance at a version of um, the characters that I'm exploring in my daily strip that I'm going to start serializing within the next couple of weeks on my Patreon for now. Put it out in the wider uh, universe like in the future. But uh, we got a lot of stuff going on. Not the only way you could support the channel. Jimmy, let them know. Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts, hats, mugs, stickers, and more at our spread shop. That oh. link is also under this video. All great ways to support the channel. Give them those marching orders and we'll be on our way. Make more comics.